Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Our scripture reading from today is from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. When the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the God, or this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. Boom. God said, let there be light. Jeremy said, let there be light. That's for you note takers out there. I don't want you to have to scribble your notes in the dark, right? All right. Good morning, everyone. We doing good? Good, good. So we are quickly approaching Easter, right? We are just four short weeks, three shorts if you don't count today, but just weeks away from from Easter. And so today we start our Easter sermon series, and I'm excited about this one. Uh, I think I'm excited about all our sermon series. I guess I wouldn't write them if I wasn't excited about them, right? As an English teacher, when I used to teach high school English, there was this cheesy poster that was up up on the wall, but it said, No tears for the writer, no tears for the reader which I always taught to students, that means if you want to communicate an emotion to your audience, you've got to feel that emotion first, right? I think part of the thing that we struggle with as Christians when we evangelize, when we talk to other people about Jesus, y'all, if God's love isn't real to you first, you're not going to be able to make it convincing to anyone else. Amen? So what do we need? We need a fresh wave of God's love, and we can only get that through by asking the Holy Spirit. 
through an encounter of God. So we've got to ask him to wash over us. So the good news is I'm excited about this sermon series. So hopefully that means you all will be excited about this sermon series, right? But we're going to talk about this concept, this idea. See, there's a danger in the Easter season. We've got two dangers that I see in the church today. Number one, this is a pet peeve of mine. We get so focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter that we forget that Jesus Christ is resurrected all 364 other days of the year, right? Now, this always bothers me on Good Friday service. I, I am guilty. I have done this in the past. But on Good Friday service, there's like, hey, guys. And, and, and part of the problem is we, we're, we live in this production world, right? Where like, you, you got to leave the cliffhanger. So like Friday, leave Jesus in the ground because on Sunday he's going to blow up, right? And so we, so we want to leave these cliffhangers, these Hollywood cliffhangers. And so on Good Friday service, it's don't talk about Jesus raising from the dead yet. He hasn't risen yet. He has, y'all, right? It's just, it's not, this isn't the Easter bunny here. Jesus doesn't go back in the tomb and hide in there for two, three days and then pop out on Easter. That's not how this works. You got resurrection power right now and it doesn't go away, right? So that's one thing I see. But then the other problem that we have, and I see this in the church in general, the other danger that we have, it becomes more and more popular in the American church that we refuse to talk about sin, right? I was, I, actually, Mark Hansen and I were just talking last week, and, and he was telling me a story about someone that he had heard who they, when they were talking about choosing a church, they chose a church because they didn't feel any kind of conviction in that church. The church never made them feel bad, and so, you know, they, they, but that's what we shoot for, right? We want to be comfortable, and so we go, we find places that are going to let us stay comfortable. The problem with that is, is that we miss this, and y'all, as the church capitulates, it's a fancy word for gives into, as, as we give in to this idea of making people comfortable, we stop preaching sin, right? Because nobody wants to hear about the things they do wrong. But here's the problem, and you're starting to see it in the fruit that we're reaping in the church in the United States. When people don't get taught about sin, they don't see any need for a Savior. Right? And so, if we don't see a need for a Savior, then Easter's just kind of, eh. Right? Because that's the problem. And that's what we're going to look at with this whole Easter sermon series in reversing the curse. It's one thing to know that Jesus came. It's one thing to know that Jesus died on a cross. It's one thing to know that Jesus was resurrected. But it is a whole other thing to know why Jesus had to do all of that stuff. See, it's really interesting. There's this, there's this interaction. We see Jesus tells this story about this, the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? Lazarus is up in heaven, this rich man goes to hell, and the rich man is, is you know, just begging Abraham, like, please, Abraham, can, can I just, can, can, can my servant Lazarus, can he just give me, just, just, a, just a dip his finger in water and give me a drink? Can he do something? Can, okay, can he go to my family? And Jesus says something in here that I think goes over a lot of our heads, because in that, he says, can you send Lazarus to my family? and warn them about what I'm going through right now so that this same fate doesn't fall to them. And Jesus says, even if someone raises from the dead, they won't believe him. 
That's why they have the law and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And we don't, you know, we do this a lot with Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus' teaching is like on this deep level down here, and we're like, ha surface. And so we don't ask questions. But what does Jesus mean when he talks about that? And he's saying, it's not good enough to just think Jesus rose from the dead. That's not good enough. That's not going to get you there. You've got to know why he rose from the dead. And that's what the law and the prophets tell us. Why do you need a savior? The church doesn't preach that in America today. There are churches that do. I'm not, this isn't like, all churches stink. You're in the right one. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, if your church doesn't preach sin, you got to get out. Because you've got to understand why Jesus came. It's not good enough to just, uh, to just know that he came. You've got to know why he came. And the reason Jesus came, Jesus did not come to make you comfortable, right? He didn't come to make you comfortable. Jesus didn't endure the cross so that you can sit back forgiven of all your sins while still enjoying the fruit of all your sin, right? That's how we treat Jesus today. Well, Jesus died and covered all my sins so that I can sin, but I don't have to worry about any of the consequences. Oh, buddy. You talk about forbidden fruit. That is a lie from the pit of hell, and it's got a lot of people deceived. Fact of the matter is Jesus came to undo everything we have done wrong. That starts all the way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Jesus came to undo it. But the problem we have is that's where some people leave the gospel, right? Jesus did come to undo it, true, but the gospel doesn't end there because Jesus also came to give us the power to keep it undone. Y'all, we've got a ton of Christians running around today Jesus has reversed this curse, and we run right back into it, right? Right? Like a dog returning to vomit, right? That's, that's what the proverb says, right? We just keep running back into it. Jesus set us free, hallelujah, I'm going to go back. Jesus set us free, hallelujah, I'm going to go back again. Jesus set, y'all, Jesus set us free, but he's given you the power to stay free. Don't run back into it. It's like when the Israelites are wandering in the desert for 40 years and they, they start grumbling at Moses. Man, when we were in Egypt, at least we had good food to eat. You were slaves. Are you kidding me right now? You were beaten. You worked all day and all night, but you had fish to eat, so you want to go back? Yet that's what so many of us do eternally with our souls. We run back into bondage. And we think it's okay. We've got blinders on. And the problem is the church who's supposed to be taking the blinders off isn't saying anything different. We have got to know why Jesus came. Because when we know why Jesus came, when we know how Jesus came and reversed the curse, then we too can reverse the curse. We're going to look at this this whole month, the depths to which Jesus reversed this, and I think it's going to shock some of us. You know, Genesis 3 is one of those stories, if you've been around long enough, you've heard this over and over again. You hear it in Sunday school, you hear it in over and over, and the problem, we've talked about this in Christmas and stuff like that. The problem is, with these stories, we get so familiar with them, 
we, we don't learn from them, right? We let it go right over our heads. And so we're going to dig in, but I'm going to warn you. This is your warning. You knew you were going to get a warning, right? This is like looking in a mirror, right? If you're in a hurry and you got to get out the door, you just glance at the mirror real quick and take off, right? But then if you really look in the mirror, you start, oh man, is that a pimple? Is that? And then 15 minutes later, after you're done popping that pimple, then, then you get out the door, right? But then if you really start looking in the mirror, oh man, this doesn't look good with my eyes at all. I'm going to go get change, right? The deeper we look into something, the more we see is wrong with the picture, right? We're going to look deep into this. But when you look deep into the mirror, you're going to see blemishes that need to come off, right? What we do with those blemishes is up to you. But I'm going to warn you, this is the blemish. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are not the bad guys. Convenient scapegoats, right? We dump it all on Adam and Eve. It's their fault I'm so screwed up, kind of. You're the problem, right? We are the problem. Adam and Eve aren't the only bad guys in this story. You're the bad guy too. And unless we read these stories in this book that way, that we are the villains, you're never going to get anywhere with God. We've got to start there, that I am the villain, and then apply grace. So that's what we're going to start with. Here it is. Today we're talking about the curse. If we are going to reverse it, we have to know what we're reversing, right? To truly understand why Jesus had to come, we've got to understand the curse that he came to defeat. And we're going to look at three things today. First, we're going to look at the lie that Adam and Eve bought into. And this is the same lie, y'all. Here's the thing. I don't care how old you think the earth is. Evolution, no evolution, thousand years, a million years, whatever. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You're not going to be kept out of heaven for either one of those views. What I do care about is this. The enemy, for as long as this world has been around, Satan has been using the same tactic. The same tactic. Do you know why a general who's going into battle uses the same tactic for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? Because it works. You're a stupid general if your plan fails and you keep using it thousands of years, right? In fact, you're probably not a general anymore because you're dead. Satan uses it because it works. His playbook hasn't changed because it works. When I used to coach football in high school, guess what we did? When we would run a play and it worked, guess what we did? We just kept running it. It was dive left, dive right, dive left, dive right, dive left, dive right. I did those backwards. This is my right, but it's yours, so it works. But that's what we did. We just run it again and again and again and again until they stopped it, right? Satan's sitting here laughing at us Christians. These idiots. <laughs> this is just dive right. Dive right, dive right, dive right, dive right, and they can't stop it because we don't learn. So let's learn from the lie. From the lie, we see what the result of that lie is, and then finally we look at how God reverses that. So first, let's look at the lie. Again, we know this story. Don't skim over it. Lots of times I do this in my Bible. I read the Bible in a year, every year. I tend to do this. 
But lots of times I'll do this. I'll get to like the story of David and Goliath, especially if I'm tired and I think, ah, I know this story, so I just kind of skim it, right? Come on, don't pretend you're better than me. You guys have done it too, right? Please, someone, tell me you've done it. But we can't do that with this story. We've got to dig in. So we're actually going to go through this line by line so that you can see exactly what's going on here. First, the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord has made. And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? First, the serpent equals Satan. Equal Satan all the way through the Bible. You go through Genesis, Revelation, all the way through it. Serpent equals Satan. That is what he is always compared to. All through Scripture. And what is Satan's number one job? Satan's goal is the character assassination of God. That's it. His job, his goal is to throw God under the bus and make us question God's character at every point and at every turn. And we sit here and we think, oh, that's Satan. He's such a dirty, rotten y'all. Who's the bad guy? We're going to keep coming back to this. We do the same thing, don't we? As soon as somebody tells me something I don't want to hear about myself, What's the first thing I do to get out from under that bus? I throw them under it, right? Because as long as they're a scumbag, what they say about me, well, that can't possibly be true, right? We do the same thing, don't we? When somebody tells us something we don't want to hear, we seek out to assassinate their character. We seek out to try to throw mud on them, to try to make them look bad. We'll do it behind closed doors, but then when we get bold enough, we'll even go out and start doing it in front of other people, don't we? Whose tactic is that? It's not God's, is it? Uh-uh. It's Satan's. His number one job is to do anything to get you to question God's character. And so he plants this seed with Eve. Did God really say you aren't allowed to eat from any of the trees in the garden. Is that what God said? That's not what God said, is it? Not at all. But he plants a seed. Because what's underneath that? What's Satan implying? And I think this is going to sound really familiar to us when we dig into the motive. Satan's actually saying, how could a loving God put boundaries on you? How could a loving God, if God really loved you, wouldn't he let you eat any fruit in the garden? Why would he keep things from you that are going to make you feel good? Ooh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? When we put it that way, it sounds a lot like the common objections we hear to God today, doesn't it? How could a loving God dot, dot, dot? It's character assassination. We are doing everything we can, Satan's doing everything he can to smear the character of God. The problem is God never said this. Adam and Eve were literally allowed to eat from any tree in the garden except one. But Satan twists it. He says, don't look at all the things you can do. Look at the one thing you can't do. 
we do the same thing, don't we? Don't look at all the things that this person's done for you. Look at the one thing he won't do for you. Look at what he doesn't give you. Look at how he doesn't make you feel, right? Again, it's a tactic of the enemy because the enemy knows as long as we are obsessed over the negative, we are never going to see the positive. If he can twist Adam and Eve's attention onto the one thing they're not allowed to do, they are never going to think that God's blessing them. They're never going to see God's blessing because if, if you don't have yachts and boats and all of this stuff, then you can't possibly be blessed by God. Look at all the things this guy has over here that you don't have. You serve God just as diligently as him, don't you? Even better, because he's a sinner. And as long as we focus on what we don't have, as long as we focus on the negative, we will never be able to see how blessed we truly are. All along the way, Satan sabotages our relationship with God because he knows, and he sabotages our relationship with others as well, right? Because he knows as long as we're obsessed over the negative, we'll never look at the positive. So he plants these seeds of doubt. And here's the thing, Eve gets it at first. Look at Eve's response. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. If you've got the, you know, it's the UFC fight or whatever boxing match, right? Ding, ding, round one ends. Scorekeeper walks around with the score. Eve won, Satan zero. What's up, right? She won. She fought him off. She's probably getting pretty excited. Pulls out her tambourine. Went to the enemy's camp. And I took back what he stole from me, right? He's under my feet, right? Right? But this is the problem we have in Pentecostal churches today. We get so excited about one victory that we let down our guard. Because guess what, y'all? Satan doesn't stop after one battle. You win one battle and he doesn't stop. He's coming again, but he's going to come a different way. The serpent said to the woman, You certainly will not die, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You can hear it in Satan's response. He's saying, Ah, I got you. I told you that that God of yours was no good. You can hear it in his response, can't you? Come on, Eve, what kind of loving God would kill you, would kill you for eating from the fruit from that tree? Look at the fruit. It's exactly the same as all of this other fruit. And you're telling me that your loving God is going to take your life if you eat from it? Wait a minute. I know what it is because God doesn't want to share his power with you. That's why. He doesn't want you to become like him. He doesn't want you to become better than him. He knows that if you eat that fruit, you won't need him anymore. What's funny is, why did Satan get kicked out of heaven? Because Satan wanted a road where he could become greater than God without God's help right? 
Satan wanted that position of God, but he didn't want to go through God to get there. He wanted to do it on his own. Misery loves company because that's the exact same delusion that Satan tries to pull us into. If Satan can't overthrow God, then he will take everyone with him that he can. And that lie continues today. You don't need God. You can be just like him on your own. You can be just as wise as God. In fact, you can be better than God. Because look at this world. Look at all of this suffering and injustice that God allows. Surely, if you were God, you would never allow this kind of suffering and injustice, would you? See, you're better than him. You know better than him. You can be better than him. And we have an entire culture that believes they don't need God. Let's be honest. The lie works, doesn't it? It works. Because we are so simple-minded that we think that what we see and what we know has to be the best way, right? Y'all, I remember when I was 16 years old, I had a girlfriend and I thought I was going to marry her. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that she would just date me so that I could marry her. Guess where she is now? Not my wife. <laughs> I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer. Not because of anything wrong with her, but because I met Jana, right? But y'all, and, and I'm learning this more and more. I can't tell you the number of times. I was just talking to Miss Karen about this this week, but, but I can't tell you how many times. My mom and dad are here, so this is good. This will give me brownie points with them. How many times I thought, man, doggone it, mom and dad were right. I should have never done this that way. Right? Anybody else? And you think when you're 20 years old, you know it all. But then you get to 30, and you're like, holy cow, I don't know anything yet. And then you get to 40, and you realize, oh boy, I was really stupid. Then you get to 50, and 60, and 70. Y'all, when do we get it through our heads? We just don't know, ever. Right? But God does. And yet we fall into this lie that for some reason because we can't see any possible way that God could have something good come out of evil and suffering, there must not be a good reason for it. So I'm better than him. I know better than him. And we buy into the character assassination of God. And it works. And it worked. Because when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve saw that the fruit looked like just like every other fruit in the garden. It looked good. Do you know how we know that? There was no such thing as rotten fruit at that point in time, right? It was all perfect. God doesn't make junk, y'all, right? It was good. But even better, even more enticing, it was desirable to make Eve wise. Not God's wisdom. That's the lie here. And that's the lie that Satan's throwing up that can never be achieved by this fruit. 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is the lie that we are buying into as a culture that can never be achieved. You can obtain knowledge without God. You can never obtain wisdom without God. God alone holds the keys to wisdom. He is the only one. So you can read all the books, you can listen to all the podcasts, you can do all the things and gain knowledge, but it is only through the Holy Spirit that you can gain wisdom, what to do with that knowledge, how to apply it in different situations. Adam and Eve thought they could become wise by eating from this fruit. We have churches and Christians today who think they can become wise by consuming all of this information. And yet we are the smartest, stupidest culture in the history of mankind. We know more than any other culture because it's all right on your phone, right? Whip out my phone and I can Google who holds the MLB batting average record? Who cares? Right? Somebody cares. I'm not, I don't mean that to make fun of you. But, but right? We can look up anything, any fact, and yet we have no idea what to do with those facts. No idea what to do with that information. Because God alone holds the keys to wisdom. But Adam and Eve bought the lie, just like we buy the lie. They thought that they could consume this fruit and they wouldn't need God anymore. They thought, like a lot of Christians are taught today, that you can graduate from the gospel. You can graduate from needing God. I've told you guys, this is one of my beefs with Pastor Tim Keller. He's like my hero of all heroes, but this is a, this is a thing him and I, I don't see eye to eye on this. Because he, he has a teaching, I've heard sermons of his, where he advocates that you know we can eventually move on to where we do things on our own, and then when we need help, we can ask God for help. Right? That's an oversimplification. I'm sure he would absolutely destroy me in a debate over this if I said that to him face to face. But, but, but that's what he says in his sermons. I don't believe that. Not at all. Every time I look through Scripture, every time I look through the Bible, I see over and over again dependence on God. You need the Holy Spirit not to do supernatural things, not to do big, incredible, wow, look at this, I can speak in different languages, I can heal people, I can shoot magic from my fingers and make people do stuff. Not that. That's, that last one's not in the Bible, don't worry. It's, that's not a real thing. I need God every moment of every day. We've got to redefine this, church. We've got to redefine what it means to be spirit-filled. Because when people talk about, I want to be part of a spirit-filled church, I want to be a spirit-filled Christian, what many of them mean is, I want to go around and boss people around with prophecies, and I want to speak in tongues, and I want to heal people. And I, Look, that's not bad stuff. In fact, I think that that stuff should happen in the life of a believer, as God calls you to do it. But what I think is more important is that every moment of every day you look like Jesus. Every moment of every day you walk out your faith in such a way that people see Jesus at work in you and around you. And the supernatural will come. But as long as we define spirit filled by supernatural, we miss it. We are going to miss it. Adam and Eve thought that they could graduate from God with this fruit. They thought they could stop leaning on God like a crutch. 
that they could start leaning on their own wisdom and their own understanding. And they were wrong. And for a minute, real quick, I've talked about this before, but I want to hit it again. I'll hit it every time I hit this because it, it bothers me. Throughout church history, Eve's gotten a bad rap. She's guilty. I'm not saying she's not guilty. But so many times, and, and unfortunately, the church has bought into this. And so, you know, women get knocked down a peg because, well, Eve was the one who first sinned. Y'all, stop. Stop, stop, stop. Because look at where Adam is in the middle of all of this. Right there with her. Husbands, future husbands, get it together. When you see your wife doing goofy stuff, you smack that fruit out of her hand. Stop being a pansy and be a man and protect your wife. You hear me? That was my nice rebuke. The mean one's coming later. I'm just kidding. But for real, Adam's just sitting there. And Eve is about to do something that God has said, if you do this, you'll die. And Adam is standing right there and lets it happen. In action. And because of his decision, and then he eats it too, right? Adam shares just as much guilt because of Adam's inaction. Because Adam is a coward and won't tell his wife to put the fruit down. Because Eve accepts the enemy's lie and they both buy into this character assassination of God. All of mankind falls into sin. That is the result. Sin is introduced into the world and everything suffers. Y'all, everything suffers. Jonathan Edwards, uh, he, he has this sermon. Some of you actually may have heard of it. They used to actually teach it in English class, in American literature. You're not allowed to do that anymore because it's a sermon and it talks about God and you can't do that in public schools. But they used to teach it. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so they would talk about that when you get to the, the period of early American literature and uh, you know the Protestant Reformation, or not Protestant Reformation, the um, Great Awakening in, in the United States and all this stuff. So that you would read this, this sermon. But one of the things that he talks about in this sermon is that Mankind is the only being that has the option of disobeying God. And that it is only by God's grace, His grace, that at this moment right now, the earth doesn't open up and swallow all of us. That's how obedient nature is to God. Right? But when Adam and Eve screwed up, when they fell, everything fell under the curse. That includes nature. That includes every part of this world that God had made so perfect. All of a sudden, the fruit on those trees wasn't so ripe anymore. All of a sudden, we start to see rotten fruit. We start to see the earth falling apart. We start to see animals turning against each other. All of this stuff introduced because we can't keep it together. We are the only ones of God's creation 
that has the choice to disobey him. And we chose to disobey him. And we still choose to disobey him. It's a little humbling, isn't it? But it's interesting because when we look at what Adam and Eve wanted in eating the fruit, what Satan tempts them with, it causes us to redefine what sin is. Sin is introduced into the world, but so many times we look at sin as tisk tisk, right? The nuns get out the rulers and smack you across the knuckles, right? Don't do that, don't do that, don't eat the fruit, don't do that. But, but we don't look at what is sin really? Because Adam and Eve, why did they eat the fruit? And they ate the fruit because they wanted to go their own way, right? We hammer this over and over here at the Gospel House. There are two ways to do things, right? God's way and everything else, right? Everything else that is not God's way is sin. That is a broad definition of sin, isn't it? This is what people don't like about real Christianity. You're telling me that I miss this and I only get it right this. Yep. And, and don't, don't point the gun at me, y'all. I didn't teach that. Jesus did. Right? Straight and narrow is the path that leads to him. Wide is the destruction. Right? That's Jesus, y'all, not me. But that's because there's only two ways to do things. There's God's way and there's everything else. Adam and Eve chose everything else. What do we choose? What do you choose? Do you let God have your way? Or do you have me time? Pastor, I need my me time. Says who? Says who? Every other way brings the same results. And it is this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. There's so many layers here that we miss. The fruit worked, first of all. Adam and Eve got exactly what they wanted. Their eyes were opened, and they knew the difference between good and evil. And they realized something else. They were exposed. They were all naked. This is everybody's worst nightmare, right? Right? Everybody has the dream where you're standing up in front of an entire group of people without any clothes on. Literally the worst nightmare that any of us could have. But here's the problem, y'all, and, and deep psychology, this will tell you, they'll tell you this, right? Whenever you have a dream, if we're dream psychologying things, anytime you have a dream and you're up in front of people without any clothes on, what's that really mean? you're worried that you are going to be exposed, right? Are you worried that someone's going to see your private parts? <laughs> no, that's not what the dream means, right? I mean, maybe you are, I don't know, that's a weird thing to dream about, but, but we're worried. I mean, every time I've ever had that dream, it's been like before I'm about to give a presentation and I'm nowhere near prepared, right? But that's the thing, and, and that psychology hits on something that we miss in this story. Y'all, Adam and Eve covering themselves had nothing to do with nudity, right? 
It had nothing to do with the fact that they were naked. The reality was Adam and Eve were exposed. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it opened their eyes. See, here's the thing. Satan told them, eat from the tree and your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Implying you will know good and evil and you'll be able to see all the ways God was holding out on you. You'll be able to see all of his dirty laundry. The problem is they ate from the fruit and guess what? God came out the same as when they went in. They ate the fruit and their eyes were opened and they saw, oh my goodness, there's no evil in him. And then they looked in the mirror and they thought, oh shoot, the evil's all in us. You see what happened? The fruit worked, but the result was not what Adam and Eve thought they would find. Satan led them down this road to believe that they would find fault in God for holding out on them. But when they got down that road, they saw there was no fault in God. He was just as perfect as he said he was. He was just as good as he said he was. The problem was all inside of them. And now that they saw how imperfect they were, how short they fell from God's standard, they were exposed. And they went through everything they possibly could to cover that up. We do the same thing, don't we? When we get found out, we look for every man-made cover that we can to try to cover ourselves up, don't we? We blame it on other people. We, we, we you know, make excuses. We do whatever we can so that we're not the bad guy. Adam and Eve realized how vulnerable they were before God for the first time. And for the first time, they didn't like it. So they tried to cover it up. They tried all of these man-made ways to cover it up, to cover this intimacy that used to be there with God. And it wasn't good enough. And guess what, y'all? It's not good enough for us today either. As long as you are trying to find man-made covers for your intimacy with God, it is never going to work. Your nakedness will always be exposed. And we know that because God shows up in this story. It says, Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Even after all the things we do to cover ourselves up, when God shows up, we still hide, don't we? After all the legalism, after all the excuses, after all of the ways that we don't need a Savior, that we're good enough on our own, that we don't need to do this Jesus thing, when God shows up, we hide. And y'all, this is sin's desire. This is why Satan wanted it in us so bad. Because this is the result of sin. It causes us to hide from God's presence. 
It opens our eyes to the evil in us. And we fear being in the presence of one who is truly good. Now, a majority of the people won't admit this, right? It's weakness to admit that you are afraid. And so we would much rather just believe that there is no God. Yeah, there's, there, there is no God. There's no such thing as, as this God. Or we make God in our own image so that our sin doesn't really bother God that much. So that our sin isn't that bad. Because if there's nothing to separate us, right? But the truth of the matter is, sin will always separate us from God. Sin will always ruin our relationship with God. Because that closeness that once existed, when God would show up in the the garden, Adam and Eve would run to God, right? It doesn't exist anymore. Because of the curse. And it doesn't end there either. Because we see that that curse ruined the relationship with Adam and Eve and God. But it's not just that. God says to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam responds, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. And God says to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. How many buses were there in the Garden of Eden? Because everybody gets thrown under one, right? Because the curse of sin, we talked about this in the whole sermon series last month, right? The curse of sin does not just impact our relationship with God. Sin impacts our relationship with everyone. And you see it here. It all unravels, doesn't it? Adam throws Eve under the bus. Eve throws the serpent under the bus. Serpent throws God under the bus, I guess. There's nobody left to point to at that point, right? Everybody... It's his fault. It's his fault. God, this is your fault. You made me this way. This is all your fault. It's God's fault that I am this way. And on and on and on it goes. Absolutely anything we can do to keep from taking accountability. Right? It's quite the mess, isn't it? But you know what's crazy? in the midst of this mess, theologically speaking, God has never once lost control. Do you guys know that? There are a lot of people who don't like to chase this path. (laughs) This is where I get labeled as a Calvinist and people start throwing me under the bus. But listen, y'all, God has never once once been out out of control. He's got everything under control. I got my analogies all crossed there. God's got it under control. He always has. There hasn't been one time in the history of his creation that he has ever lost control, which means if Romans 8.28 is a promise for you to stand on today, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, so I can trust that he's going to deliver me. Yes, you can. It also means that all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan and a purpose for all of this. How in the world could God turn the fall of mankind out? That's not your burden to bear, is it? It's his. But can God work even this out for good 
for those who love him? The answer is yes, ladies and gentlemen. He's proven it again and again. And how does he do it? Through his son, Jesus Christ, who reverses all of this. After this scene that we just read through, God gives each party involved a separate curse. He tells Satan what his consequences are for his actions. He tells Eve the consequences of her actions. He tells Adam the consequences of his actions. But then after that, God gives them a promise. And it is a glorious promise, and I think 70% of us miss it every time. Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. There's a theology that goes layers and layers and layers here that I'm not going to get into today. But here is the umbrella point. God will cover us. Adam and Eve did everything in their power to cover themselves from God, to cover their exposure, to cover their nakedness from God, and it wasn't good enough. So God steps in and says, I will cover you. The theme continues throughout the Old Testament. God continually tells his people, the Israelites, I will cover you. In fact, as we approach this Easter season, the Jewish holiday that's about to take place is called the Passover. What are the Jews celebrating on Passover? And y'all listen, this is a plug. If you you know somewhere that celebrates the Passover, I would highly encourage you to learn about it, to study it. I really believe when we get to heaven, I do not think we are going to stop celebrating those feasts. I think there's going to be a lot of Jewish stuff that happens in heaven that we Christians, while we're here on this earth, are like, oh, that's Jewish stuff. (laughs) We're going to get to heaven, it's going to be like slap across the face. Jesus was Jewish, y'all. Guess what Jesus celebrated? All the Jewish feasts, all the Jewish things. Guess what I'm pretty sure we'll be celebrating in heaven? All the Jewish feasts, all the Jewish things. God likes a celebration, y'all right? And so why would we stop? But that's what the Passover is, right? The Israelites are making their way out of Egypt. They're trying to get out of bondage. So God sends all of these plagues, and the last plague he sends is a plague that takes the firstborn of every family in Egypt. Every firstborn in every family will die unless you sacrifice a Passover lamb and put some of its blood over your doorway. If you are covered by the blood, you will not die. God will cover us. It is no coincidence that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ took place over the Passover weekend. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, The Passover lamb proved once and for all that God will cover us. 
that God himself will reverse the curse of sin and death, and you and I can once again draw near to him. We don't have to hide anymore. The New Testament tells us this in Hebrews 10. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And in 1 John, it tells us this, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ is shed to cover our nakedness of sin, to eliminate our separation from God. But ladies and gentlemen, we must stop trying to cover ourselves our own way. Too many Christians today still refuse to come under the blood of Jesus. We know the right words to say. We know how to make it look good. We know what we're supposed to do. And so we mask it. But guys, this is Christians. If Christians can't figure this out, how do we expect the world to? We have got to stop trying to make our own way to God. And we've got to let Jesus do it. As long as we try to do it our way, we're still covering our nakedness with man-made ways. We have got to trust Him to cover us, which means we cannot come to Jesus our way. Right? When we come to Jesus, we come His way, not ours. Hebrews 10 talks about this new and living way which Jesus inaugurated for us. 1 John tells us that if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, y'all, what does this mean? You have got to walk in the Spirit. Not, this is not Lean on Jesus when you need him, but do your best. That's what the church preaches today, y'all, right? We want practical sermons so that we can go out and do it. Y'all, this isn't practical. There's, there's one step to the practical of this. Give it all to Jesus. 100% obedience to the Holy Spirit. It's hard, isn't it? We can, and, and, and I think that's the problem most of us have with the gospel is that we want it to be super complicated because then we, we get why it's hard. If it's super complicated, if there's a bunch of steps, then I get why it's hard. It, it's not, y'all. There is one step. We don't like taking it, right? My, my son Gideon, he's, he's walking. Some of you have seen him toddling around here, right? He's sprinting. So we, in our house, we have one of those uh, uh, sunken living rooms. Is that what they call it? Where it, like, there's like a little step into the living room. It's kind of like this stage right here. So Gideon, he, he's, it, when he was crawling, it was good because he'd get to the edge and he'd, 
lean his little foot over and he'd get down, right? Now that he's walking and running, he is getting bolder and bolder, and so he's just sprinting right off the step, whoop, right? And it's never a good thing because he face plants, and he does it, 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 and he does it. Stupid one-year-olds, right? And yet, spiritually speaking, Jeremy does the same thing. God says, Jeremy, it's one step. You just don't like that you got to take it. Thanks for that one, Gideon. That, that was Holy Spirit. That just hit me right now. I wasn't even planning on saying that. Right, y'all? I'm in the boat with you. I, I, I'm just as bad at this obedience thing. Because, guys, 99% obedience isn't enough. And it's never going to be enough. Jesus Christ came to reverse the curse. It's done. It's reversed. But he's also given us the power to live in that reversal all the time. Stop running back to your old way of doing things. Jeremy, stop running back to my old way of doing things. Give him complete control all the time. Christians pretend that we've got to wait until heaven to live this reversal, right? Well, Jesus reversed the curse, and when we get to heaven, then we'll stop sinning. That's not what his word says. His word says that right now, you can be sinless. Ladies and gentlemen, from this moment forward, starting right now, you can stop sinning. You never have to sin again. His word says it, not me. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus goes through healing these people? He meets the woman at the well. He heals these people. And and what does he tell all of them when they leave? He says, go and sin no more. When does Jesus ever tell anyone to go do something they can't do? He doesn't, right? God doesn't give us impossible tasks unless he has also given us the power to accomplish them. Church, God is saying, go and sin no more. But you have got to stay plugged into the Holy Spirit. Every moment of every day, surrendered to the Spirit, 100% obedience. Be made in His image. And you don't have to wait for that. Christ follower, Right now, you can pray this prayer and you can become sinless and you never have to go back to that life. All you need is surrender. You guys have heard me talk about, my father-in-law says the most powerful prayer in the Bible, right? Mark 14, 36. But can I brag on my father-in-law for a minute? What makes Van so incredible is not that he prays, not my will. It's that he lives, not my will. Church, it's not good enough just to pray the prayer. We've got to live it. I have to live it. A life that is not my will. And when we learn to pray that, We can leave the old me in the past. Y'all, it is possible 
but we have to live a real spirit-filled life, not just lip service that we give God so people think we're good Christians. If we give God everything, if we let the Holy Spirit have complete control, we can live a life that is untouched by sin. That's what pleases God. That's what he wants for us. And y'all, it's worth it. If God says that's the best way, then that means it's worth it, right? That's not my promise to you. It's his. But we've got to be willing to let it go. So church, this is next level stuff. This is the hardest thing that you will ever do. But I am asking you, the Holy Spirit is asking you, will you let go and surrender completely to my will? We really don't like that today. Because when I surrender to God's will, it means that I am completely out of the picture, right? I don't get a vote anymore. If God says tomorrow, Jeremy, China, I'm gone. That's what's holding most of us back, isn't it? To relinquish that kind of control of our lives, to hand it over to Him. But y'all, there are nail-pierced hands and feet in the Savior of your life that prove to you without question that you can trust Him, that He can take anything and work it together for your good. Holy Spirit, we cannot take any of these steps unless you open our eyes to how much we can trust you, unless you open our hearts to how completely we can trust you. God, we want to be more. I want to be more. I want to be completely your man. And so I ask you, God, to take everything that I have, to take this small offering that I can bring and to make it perfect, Holy Spirit. To breathe life into me, your life, and to get all of me out of the way. Holy Spirit, have your way in every single person here, every single person watching online. Breathe new life. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House Podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like Him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.